Welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian O'Fry, Spears Gilbert Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Scott J. Shapiro, Charles F. Southmade Professor of Law and Professor of Philosophy at Yale Law School, and the founder of the Doc Project Program and the Media Freedom and Information Access Clinic at Yale Law School. So welcome to the show, Scott. Oh, thank you so much, Brian, for having me. So just by way of contextualizing the subject matter of our interview today, I wonder if you could tell listeners a little bit about the DOC project and what it is. Yes. Um, so at Yale Law School, we have this amazing clinic called, we, we call it Mafia, Media Freedom and Information Access Clinic. And the DOC project is a project within the Mafia Clinic, where we provide legal representation um, and legal advice for independent documentary filmmakers. Well, so how did it get started? How did this become part of that program? Well, um, this was part of my resistance, hashtag resistance. Um, What happened was uh, on I believe it was November 9th, 2016, um, late, late, um, it was was early in the morning, um, when I was coming to grips with the, the calamity of the Trump victory, I thought to myself, I have to do something. I just had finished a book on um, that where the Nazis figured prominently, the internationalists. And I, I just was haunted by maybe some of my relatives and other people who didn't take the Nazi threat maybe as seriously as they should have. Um, and not that I thought that Trump was a Nazi, but I did worry about the country and about uh, press freedoms and about what the Trump administration was going to do to civil society. And because I have a law degree and I'm a member of the bar, I thought that I would, I should contribute to pushing back. And I think everyone was, I think we, I mean, we were, we were, all of us were like, what, what, what do we do? And I spent a long time, several months, um, going from colleague's office to colleague's office, uh, speaking to people on the phone, trying to figure out where I could make a difference. And it turned out that there weren't many places where I could make a difference, certainly not as a law professor, um, as my main job. I, my wife, um, her friend, Judith Matloff, um, uh, works with documentary filmmakers uh, on this thing called Project Safety, which she she helps uh, documentary filmmakers uh, uh, improve their physical safety. And she had mentioned about the need for independent documentary filmmakers to uh, get 
legal protection. And uh, and she said they desperately need it, and they there there's just no there are very few resources out there for them. So I then started doing research on documentary filmmakers, uh, documentary organizations. Uh, Judith introduced me to Doc Project, um, uh, Doc Society, I think. No, we're Doc Project. So now it's called, uh, right, it was called Brit Doc, um, and now it's called Doc Society, and they do a lot of funding. And then I spoke to the head, um, a wonderful person, uh, Jess, uh, and we talked about what filmmakers might need, yada, 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 then talked to lots of media lawyers. It took a very, it took a very long time, about nine months, till uh, I could figure out what I could do. And I'd be happy to uh, to tell you what we came up with. Yeah, absolutely. So, so I guess I wonder. I mean, was documentary film and sort of the legal issues surrounding it something that you were interested in prior to starting this project or was this an interest that grew out of your kind of identifying a need that you thought you might have something to contribute to yeah i don't think i ever thought a second about i mean i love documentaries i watch documentaries all the time uh just yesterday i watched a documentary on beethoven i mean i just i i'm big, i'm a huge documentary fan, but I never thought, how were they made? Um, and it turned out that the documentary filmmakers, uh, independent documentary filmmakers, because there are well-established, you know, they're the Ken Burns of the world that have like PBS behind them, or they have uh, Netflix behind them or something um, where, where uh, they have some degree of protection. But for the most part, as you, as you no doubt know, uh, they're on their own. They they don't they it, it, it's not like they have they don't have a big legal budget. They have no legal budget. And I thought that here here were people who were trying to put together in some aesthetically interesting and informative way issues that matter to the country to the world so we we we, the the representation that we give we don't we don't um it's not all documentaries we we pick documentaries that are kind of the talking truth to power documentaries the ones where you know representing um vulnerable populations uh important uh um uh, social issues and thought, you know, this was a way I could contribute. The New York Times, uh, Washington Post, they don't need me. They have their own media lawyers. PBS doesn't need me. They have their own media lawyers. But there I, I found a group of people who might need or could use my, my, um, the, the resources at my disposal. Well, so when you were gathering information from a range of different people about what kind of needs might be out there for documentary filmmakers, what kinds of suggestions did people make? And how did you start to focus in on the kinds of advice and assistance that you thought you might be able to provide most effectively? Yeah. So, you know, the funny thing is, is you think, oh, you're a lawyer, so you provide legal services, but there's just many ways of being a lawyer and there are many kinds of legal services. So one of the things 
that the most obvious thing and the thought, thing I thought I was going to do was litigation. So I was very concerned about the Peter Thiel type uh, suits where a target, a bad actor, a target of a film wants to, um, you know, sues a film for libel uh, and, you know, in the case of Gawker, Gawker was a website, um, uh, got, a, got a verdict against them and, and bankrupted them. And I just thought that that didn't seem like a great thing to have in a free country uh, where uh, independent uh, news gatherers were subject to kinds of abuse. Uh, and so I thought I would litigate. But then it turned out that litigation wasn't based on my conversations with many people. It turned out that litigation didn't seem like the main, the main way in which I could contribute. The, the, the recurring theme when I spoke to documentary filmmakers and lawyers associated with them was the strike suit the the slap suit uh, where where the in order to prevent a distribution of the film the target will threaten to sue and threaten to sue in such a way that prevents or scares off underwriters from giving what's known in the business as E and O insurance errors and omission insurance and so what we we what we came up with and the idea behind the clinic and the doc project was to see if we could shrink the window between finishing the film um i should say i say finishing the filming um and uh, shrink the post production time so that underwriters would be able to give insurance or make their insurance decisions in a in, in a quicker time therefore shrinking the amount of time that targets could strike we also thought that if we had Yale Law School a Yale Law School clinic behind these films that might give the underwriters more uh, confidence in, that a lot of the legal issues had been addressed and so that's what we've been doing for the last almost and now three years. We've been um, every semester we represent uh, we 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 provide legal advice to documentary filmmakers in order to help them get insurance. We do not do litigation. Well, so Scott, maybe you could talk a little bit about what E and O insurance is how filmmakers get it sort of why it's important to filmmakers and why it matters when or if it's available to them so i'm not a filmmaker uh but my under uh, my understanding is that um whether the filmmaker wants insurance is immaterial um generally they don't have that that much uh, that many assets to begin with um they what, 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 what really matters is the distribution of the film, that without 
proper insurance, distributors feel like they'll be liable if they distribute films that are legally infirm. And so it turns out that if, regardless of what the filmmaker wants, um, they're just not going to get their film shown at Sundance without uh, insurance. And so that's why we try to help them get it. Well, so you talked about being concerned about potential libel or defamation issues and slap suits on that behalf. It's my understanding that you also offer advice in relation to certain kinds of intellectual property related questions. How would those be related to the defamation related advice and to the kind of E&O insurance angle that you're discussing? Yeah, so I would just say that um, that's the that's one thing we don't do. We don't do yeah, we don't do intellectual property, in part because intellectual property is its own beast, um, and uh, there are other clinics that handle intellectual property. So Cardozo Law School has a documentary film clinic, and they they so certain things we don't do. We don't set up LLCs for either documentary filmmakers or their films. We don't do licensing. We don't do uh, fair use and intellectual property, things like that. Uh, We do kind of mainly privacy and uh, defamation, things like releases. Uh, We do, um, we, 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 uh, we do a, not a full legal review of film, um, but we watch the rough cut and we go through it um, and we flag problems uh, and then we try to, we try to solve them, but we don't, yeah, we don't do IP. Frankly, I don't really find IP that interesting, but. (laughs) (laughs) Well, so maybe then to clarify, you could talk a little bit about some of the projects that the clinic has worked on and the kind of advice and problem solving that you've helped filmmakers with. So I'm going to be irritating. And one of the things that we're very careful with is not talking about our clients, um, uh, in part just because the whole idea behind the clinic is to to make sure that targets don't find out about the film and strike. And, uh, uh, you know, I, I, there are a number of films, uh, a lot of films actually that we we've helped, um, uh, along, uh, along the way. I'm, I don't remember which ones have actually been released. Uh, so I don't want to talk about any of the individual films themselves, but I will. I can talk about it in in more abstract terms. Um, so lots of, um, unfortunately, as you might imagine, lots of police shooting films, um, violence in schools, uh, environmental justice issues, um, um, geo, the relationship between religion and U.S. politics. These are all um, issues 
where well they're they're very hot button issues and claims are made about powerful people and claims are made about people that are often quite litigious um and so we really try to give the filmmakers our best legal advice when it comes to, hey, you know, I think you're exposed here in the claim you make um, uh, uh, at mark 13, 13 minutes and 15 seconds to 13 minutes and 45 seconds. Um, you really you, you really got to make sure that you have something backing this or, you know, I think we see children's faces in the background um, of this shot. Um, you really may want to blur them. Do you have a release? Um, you know, th things, things like that. Um, we, 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 we focus on lots of stuff having to do with um, releases, people's faces, we had an incredibly interesting question about drones. So, you know, of course, now you don't need giant cranes to get overhead shots. You can just buy a $50 drone. But the question is, you know, drones are regulated by the FAA and by the state and sometimes by the city. And we had an issue where the drone was taking footage of a federal facility. So then we had to worry about, you know, are, are, do, does the federal facility have, are there special rules about drones taking pictures of federal facilities? We had to, we, we always, I should just say, um, for, for the listeners out there, what's complicated about uh, doc, media law in, the United States is that media law is state law. There's some, there's some federal law, like I mentioned, that the FAA regulations about drones. But there's there's 50 states, and they have their own. They, each state has their own law. And what we we not only do we have to like look up, let's say Montana's privacy law, but we always we we always get a local council to double to to look over our work um and so we have to find not only do we have to look up montana law but we have to find a montana lawyer a media lawyer who we trust so, so it could be you know it, there's a lot of um uh a lot of uh, uh hoops to jump through well so i imagine there's a lot of documentary filmmakers out there who don't really know a whole lot about the law and how it works and more importantly when they need to start thinking about it imagine kind of like hypothetically in the abstract there was someone in that circumstance what would you tell them about when they should start thinking about kind of potential problems of this kind and you know when and how they should start trying to grapple with them oh well, i mean i would say and it never happens but I would say at the very beginning, um, because so much of what we do is trying to deal with, you know, messes that were created because the filmmakers in question, they're themselves not media attorneys. And so they'll get, I don't know, they'll download a, a release form from the Internet and use it. And, you know, maybe it's not a very good release form. Uh, and so what 
we 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 hope that uh, documentary filmmakers would take these issues seriously at the beginning, just to save themselves headache and heartache later on, because they're they're probably going to have to deal with these issues at some point, and we don't want them to have to deal with it at the stage where the insurance company is doing their legal review. We we want it to be as clean as possible and it's easier um, to make it clean if we're there at the very beginning. I will tell you though, that my, uh, my, our experience. So I would, let me just say, I, I work with two phenomenal media attorneys, uh, Sandy Barron and Jennifer Borg. Um, they are, you know, they're, they've been doing media law their entire lives. Um, and they, out of the goodness of their hearts and out of public spirit, they help me, I should say, I help them uh, run this clinic. Um, and so they really, uh, they really know what they're doing. But one of the things that we found out was that you can't get the clients too early. <laughs> Why? Because, you know, filmmakers, especially documentary filmmakers, they don't know generally what their story is at the beginning. They have a hypothesis, they have an intuition, they have a direction, and then they start shooting. And then we have found that the story often morphs, just like when you write a grant application to you know, for an academic project to suddenly, you know, the project changes, same thing with the film. So we found that if we got them too early, (laughs) we ended up researching things that just ended up on the cutting room floor, just never got shot because it turned out that wasn't the direction of the film. So what we try to do is we try to get documentary filmmakers who have shot enough such that they know what they're doing, but you know, we'll take anyone that's deserving and that we can give do a good job with. But, you know, and we do get filmmakers who are very far along in the process. But we like that sweet spot of getting them relatively early, but not too early. So what does the representation process look like when filmmakers come to the doc project? Like, who do they end up working with? What kind of... Uh, what kind of interview process or, you know, who are they talking to? Um, You know, how does it work in practice? Yeah. So what happens is we, we work with a a number of documentary um, film organizations and they may say, they may send us, uh, we, we actually uh, created a, a, a form for filmmakers, like an application and checklist. Um, and so they fill those out and they send it to us. And then generally, uh, Sandy and I, or, or Jennifer, or one of us, or all of us, we talk to the filmmakers just to kind of see what they, uh, what they need. Sometimes it'll be IP issues and we'll send them to Cardozo or we'll send them to other people. Uh, sometimes the questions that they have are not appropriate for us. So sometimes they want more like research assistance rather than legal representation. So sometimes they'll say, we have these transcripts, but we don't really understand them. Can you help? Can you read through all these 
grand jury testimony, all this grand jury testimony, and tell us what the legally salient issues here for our film are. And we're like, no, we don't do that either. Um, so if we find out that these are the kinds of issues that we deal with, we have them. So we have, so it's a clinic in a law school. So that means that we have students and the students uh, are the ones who mainly do the research and writing and we supervise them. And so they hand in drafts, we read it, we circulate it, we give it back to the students and it's very important for for these for the students to be able to write these memos in such a way that the filmmakers can understand. So it's not writing it for other lawyers, it's writing it for filmmakers, that they can understand what they need to do in order to protect themselves and give them some risk assessment. We also spend a fair amount of time going back and forth with the filmmakers, uh, you know, conference calls and the like, uh, working through these issues with them. Sometimes emergencies come up and they call and we have to handle them. But generally, we stick to the semester format. We kind of do the intake before the semester. We start the semester with our films we have our teams of students. We talk about what issues we think um, arise. And then the students take it from there. And we, we work like a, like a normal clinic, with the exception that since we don't do litigation, we stop the representation when the semester is over. I mean, I should say we, 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 stop, we pause the representation. Sometimes we pick up with the film, especially from fall to spring. So we're, 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 it's the spring we just started and we have carryovers from the fall. Well, so after several years of having run the program, do you have a sense of the extent to which the representation you've provided has facilitated filmmakers in obtaining, you know, insurance and maybe even potentially headed off litigation that they might otherwise have faced? You know, that's, that is the, that is the $64,000 question. Do we make any difference? I mean, I ask myself that all the time. The, our nightmare is the filmmakers getting sued. Is this like, that's, that's exactly what we don't, we're trying to prevent. So far, none of them have gotten sued. Would they have gotten sued without our help? I don't know. Will they yet get sued? I don't know. So far, they haven't gotten sued. If they got sued, would we even represent them in litigation? We haven't even faced that question. I don't know what we would do in, the, in those cases. But our, our job is never to hear from them again so to speak, like, not because we don't love them. I, I, I will just say that um, documentary filmmakers are an unusual breed. Um, I, I know you yourself are a documentary filmmaker. Let me just, just say briefly about documentary filmmakers. I mean, they are just an intrepid bunch of people. You know, they'll just like, they just, you know, throw stuff in their rucksack and, and head out and 
go where the story is. They often don't think about their own safety, legal, physical. Um, and what's so complicated about documentary filmmaking um, for them and for lawyers who represent them is that the funding, they don't get the money up front. They'll like get $10,000, let's say a $10,000 grant to start production, but they have to continually fundraise, or at least all the documentary filmmakers we've worked with um, have to continually fundraise through the course of the film. The money comes in and drips and drabs. And it's very, uh, it's a very hard life. It's, or at least it seems to me to be a very hard life that is not knowing if you can finish your film. And it throws representation off because sometimes we'll need to speak to the filmmaker, but they're shooting because they just got a tranche of money and they need to use it right away, or they need to go raise more money because if they don't raise money, they're not gonna, there's not going to be a film for us to represent. These are the, the this is a this seems to me like a very hard life. The people we've gotten to know have been absolutely wonderful. Uh, it's been an, a great pleasure to work with them. It's just that it would. It, I'm doing my job. I feel like if it's kind of a happily ever after story and that we don't hear from them again, or they come back and they want to say, you know, can you help us with our next film? So the answer is, I don't know, but so far, um, uh, no disasters. <laughs> well, so Scott, in, in closing, I mean, it sounds like this clinic is doing really important, critical work for documentary filmmakers, kind of helping them navigate this really touchy area of defamation law and the minefield that kind of comes along with it. Um, but you can only ever provide advice to a small subset of filmmakers who are out there. I mean, do you see any potential for kind of bigger picture, more structural solutions to these problems? Or is this kind of more piecemeal form of bespoke representation and sort of, you know, directed problem solving really the only way kind of to practically speaking address this issue? You know, that's such a great question, and I haven't even thought of structural solutions. I mean, it's funny because, I, you know, I, I, I'm a philosopher by training, and I, you know, tend to think about large structures and abstract things. And one of the um, disorienting aspects of this clinic is to be in the weeds and to worry about frame at mark 1315 to 1345 um, and not to think about what, you know, the coast theorem would say, um, but rather to figure out what Montana courts would decide about those frames. Um, so I haven't thought about the larger issues. I will say that one of the recurring themes I have heard expressed is that documentaries, and maybe you would disagree with this, but that documentaries are becoming more big business. 
um, you know, Netflix paying millions of dollars for documentaries. Um, it's a, it's, it's a, a growing area of media production. And so when more money goes into things, uh, people start thinking bigger about what can solve these problems. It's hard for me to imagine structural solutions when you have 50 individual states with their own media laws. Um, it's, it's hard for me to, it's hard for me to um, imagine what would that, what that would be, but I, I really appreciate Thanks for asking that question. Um, I, I, let me just add. Let me just end by um, noting a client came up to us, and we eventually decided not to take them on because it turned out not to be ripe. But they were interested in doing short films on Instagram. And what they had told us was that what they what you need to do for short films on Instagram is make sure that the first seven seconds grab you. And we're like, why? What? Like that seems awfully specific. You're like, no, you know, seven seconds is because when people are like um, scrolling through their feed with the sound off, we we find that they have basically they'll look at something for seven seconds and. You know, when when you start talking about like documentary films and start worrying about posting them on Instagram and so that the first seven seconds are catches your attention without sound, it's such a fluid area, such a fluid space. The media environment is so um, uh, it's churning that. Um, Structural solutions uh, seem uh, difficult to imagine. Well, Scott, thanks so much for coming on the show to talk about this excellent project. Uh, being somewhat from the inside myself, I know how valuable and important this kind of legal advice is to documentary filmmakers, especially in sort of areas that other people haven't been offering advice in. And I really applaud the work you've been doing in this area. Well, thank you so much for having me. It was really a it was a, it's a, it was a great pleasure to come in, come on the show and to talk about this project, which I, I really near and dear to my heart. Um, I love it, and um, it's great to talk to somebody. I, I mean, for your listeners, just to know Brian himself, not only a documentary filmmaker, which I'm sure you all know, but also regularly provides legal advice to filmmakers, um, and I think that that's wonderful. Thanks. The party lasted till the break of dawn. 
famous players turned to cabareas, how they fooled and carried on, dancing at that moving picture ball. Some scenario, great big stars paraded round the hall. They were merry, oh, handsome Wallace Reed, stepped out full of speed, and Cedar Farrah was a terror. She vamped a little lady, so did Alice Brady. Douglas Fairbanks shimmied on one hand. Like an acrobat, Mary Pickford did a toe dance grand. And Charlie Chaplin with his feet stepped all over poor Blanche Sweet, dancing at that moving picture ball. had a dance with Mr. Zucker, Mr. Thomas in stepped around just like a prince. William Fox and Jesse Lassie both joined in the fun. Big directors mingled with the actors, why the whole bunch seemed like one. Dancing at that moving picture ball. Some scenario, great big stars paraded round the hall. They were merry, oh, everyone jumped through. William Hart lasso. And Olive Thomas, why she broke her promise. She got a little bolder, shook a wicked shoulder. Pauline Frederick did a fox trot grand. Why, it was beautiful. No, Talmadge let that jazz go bend. And tennis bathing girls were there. Each one was a little bear. Dancing at that moving picture ball. Dancing at that moving picture ball. Some scenario, great big stars paraded round the hall. They were merry, oh, Mr. Charlie Ray. Why, he walked the dog and say, Miss Nazimova, Jazzamova, she made a big improvement on every little movement. Fatty Arbuckle did a new dance grand. Called the Turkish bath, lost 300 pounds, I understand. And Dorothy Dalton, a Spanish queen, why she shook a wig at tambourine, dancing at that moving picture ball. 